0: Hello, welcome back to episode number 29. Today I'm joined by Lisa Hendrickson-Jack and we're talking all about fertility awareness. For those who don't know, Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women how to chart their cycles for natural birth control, conception and overall monitoring of their health. In her new book the fifth vital sign lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign which it absolutely is alongside blood pressure and um, oxygen rate those types of things drawing heavily from the scientific research lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization she's also the host of the fertility friday podcast which is very popular and it's been around for a long period of time now so there's so much information that you can go back and listen to on that one and it's basically a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health fertility and your overall health all things that i love here as well so in this episode we discuss how our hormones fluctuate during our menstrual cycle and how the menstrual cycle isn't just about the period, we should be paying attention to ovulation, that's the most important part. Why going on the pill for your hormonal issues, whether that's acne or irregular cycles, is like putting your headphones in when the smoke alarm is going off in your home. So there's some negative like kind of downsides to the birth control pill that we'll go we'll go through. And she also touches on how that could affect your fertility and hormonal health long term what a healthy cycle and period actually looks like because we hear all the time about having a regular cycle and that it shouldn't be painful but what is it that we're actually looking for? How do we know if our hormones are balanced and our menstrual cycle is regular and normal? And finally, we dive deep into fertility awareness method, what it actually is, how it can help you prevent pregnancy or assist in conception and how to chart your basal body temperature track your cervical mucus and check your cervix position correctly as well so yeah i'm excited to show this episode with you all i get asked all the time about fertility awareness and menstrual cycle health so i love having this episode now to refer everyone to when they have questions because it's such a comprehensive episode and for more information on this subject i highly recommend picking up a copy of lisa's book the fifth vital sign She was kind enough to send me a copy prior to the recording, and I absolutely loved it. It should be mandatory reading for teenagers, young women, all across the world, because this information is never shared with us as women. We're taught that our periods are something to hide or to be embarrassed about. And it's the complete opposite. It's a natural part of life and it's a crucial sign. It's our fifth vital sign and our monthly report card. So without further ado, let me introduce Lisa to the podcast. Hi Lisa welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited to dive into all things fertility awareness with you and I thought you'd be the perfect person to have on to discuss this subject.
1: Oh, well, I'm really excited. I mean, as you know, I talk about this all the time in my bio, to A lot of yep. my friends who laugh. My bio starts with, Lisa talks about vaginas a lot. Because <laughs> true! Yep. That's fine. We love it on this
0: podcast. We're talking about poo, vaginas, cervical mucus, all that good stuff. So, don't hold back. Awesome. <laughs> so, why don't you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and... What made you initially start the podcast and with your latest book that we'll kind of cover as well, what made you want to write a book as well? Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I started, I I actually learned about fertility awareness almost 20 years ago. So I was right out of high school. I discovered the method. I was looking for a non-hormonal method because I did. I didn't completely trust the pill and I also just didn't feel comfortable being on a hormone like long term that was just something that didn't feel comfortable to me so around that time is when I discovered fertility awareness and it was just amazing to learn that you're not fertile on every single day of the cycle and there's also a way for you like just as a woman to kind of organize your you know, understand your cycles and organize your sexual activity in such a way that you can avoid pregnancy without having to rely on any external measures, essentially. So for me, that was really appealing. And so I learned the method. And then very soon after that, I took a course and began teaching women in my early 20s. And what prompted me to start the podcast, I mean, by that time, I had been... Sorry, I, I'm i not sure if you can hear that.
0: No?
1: Okay. Um At that time, I had been uh, charting my cycles for about a decade or so. I just had my first son. So after avoiding pregnancy for, I don't know exactly how many years, but almost 10 years, um, my husband and I decided to start trying. And it was right around that time that it kind of hit me that I had been able to take for granted this information about my body and my cycles for all these years. And the average woman still doesn't know how her fertility works. You know, so many women are struggling with infertility and they, they wouldn't necessarily be able to pinpoint their date of ovulation because this information, although I'm very familiar with it, is still, even to this day, not common knowledge. So that prompted me to start the podcast and the book was an extension of that because I really felt like I, I hear women all the time like saying like, oh my gosh, this is information everybody needs to know this stuff. But my aim was to just create a resource. Um to add to this conversation instead of trying to wait and hope that eventually our school systems will catch up and start teaching women about their menstrual cycles.
0: Yeah I'm I'm not sure what what it's like now but what is like the sex education like in schools is it still basically you can get pregnant every single day of the month your periods are dirty and gross and embarrassing or is it has it evolved a little bit or are you not aware of that?
1: I'm not entirely sure I think it's likely a bit different because I mean there is this positive period power movement happening right now. <laughs> and yeah. a lot more women are talking about it. But I still haven't met very many women who have not learned that they were, you know, the, the, the party line that we could get pregnant on any day of our cycles. And um, the majority of women I've spoken to in my lifetime, both young and, you know, older, were all taught this misinformation about the cycle. So I'm sure that it's slightly better than when I was growing up, but it still has a long way to go
0: okay and i do want to dive deep into fertility awareness method including all of the different factors to pay attention to but first i want to talk a bit about the menstrual cycle itself um because that obviously plays into how to do fertility awareness you need to do certain things at certain times or avoid certain things at certain times so what does a healthy menstrual cycle look like so the people that i work with the women the they're struggling with painful crampy periods very heavy every single month maybe erratic they just don't know when it's going to turn up and they're not they don't actually think that's abnormal because it's something that they've dealt with the parents have dealt with it's common but it's definitely not normal so what would you say is classed as a healthy cycle
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think the first thing is when I talk about a healthy cycle, I want to be clear that I'm not just talking about the period, because oftentimes I'll say menstrual cycle and basically the only thing that we consider is a period. And I mean, that is something that we, it's just due to the education, like kind of the limitations. Uh, So it's not just like you have your period and then like fast forward. And then there's the next one. We want to talk about the whole cycle. Uh, so day one of the cycle is the first day that you have a true flow. The first day, I often say that you have to do something about it. So typically, um, if some women experience a couple days of spotting or something like that before their period starts, we would look at the first day of flow. And then we would consider the menstrual cycle from that day until the last day before your next period starts. Uh, so overall a healthy cycle can range in length anywhere from about 24 to 35 days and that's important as well a lot of just learning about what a, a healthy menstrual cycle can look like is myth busting and the the myth is that all women have 28 day cycles and ovulation always happens on day 14 and so a lot of women might have a cycle that's 30 days sometimes or you know 32 or 27 and she might think that there's a problem so The length can vary, and just because your cycle isn't 28 days doesn't automatically mean that there's a problem. And, you know, ovulation in a healthy cycle, because the cycle can range, ovulation can happen, you know, in a, in a typical cycle as early as t- on day 10 or as late as day 22 or day 23 or something like that. And so I think that's important as well. It's important for women who are trying to get pregnant because a lot of women will time sex on day 14. And depending on the actual length of their cycle and when ovulation is really taking place, they might inadvertently be using Fertility, burnness, and birth control. Um, so, to take you kind of through the cycle, then in a healthy cycle, your period would be anywhere from about three to seven days, and um, you would expect it to kind of start moderate or heavy and then gradually taper off. Uh, we lose about 90% of our total bleeding by the third day. So it it does make sense. And, you know, most women have experienced that. Uh, You mentioned pain. A lot of women do experience pain with menstruation. And I think it's important to make the distinction. It's really common for women to experience pain with menstruation, but that doesn't make it normal or healthy. And I think for a lot of women, they've never heard anybody tell them that. It's almost just that like the expectation is your period is supposed to be hard and painful and horrible and awful and blah, blah, blah. Uh, So pain in any other situation outside of The context of your uterus (laughs) is considered to be a problem, right? If you had like serious, heavy pain in your shoulder for several days out of every month, we would be concerned about that. So, it's important to question this assumption that just because the pain is happening in your uterus and it's very common, that automatically it's completely okay. So, you know, pain is a sign of inflammation, and with women who experience period pain, what the research shows is that they do have higher levels of those inflammatory markers. So, in particular. Um, uh, prostaglandins are a lipid that's associated with inflammation and they're, it's necessary for us to create prostaglandins to help um, the uterus kind of contract to help us effectively release our bleeding during menstruation. Women who have period pain have been found to even have four times the levels. So yeah, I uh, I feel like I'm kind of going on a tangent, but I feel like it's oh, an no. important one because it's like, no, 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 it's not normal <laughs> to be <me> to like <laughs> to be in like extreme pain, like for yeah. Um, but it is common. So anyways, so yeah, that's the healthy period part. And then after your period is done, and I suppose one other thing just to say about the period is it should have like a beginning, a middle, and an end, and then be over. So if the period kind of keeps going on and on, if the period is excessively heavy, if the period is excessively light, all of those things can be an indication of an issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And so after the period is done, you would expect to have a you know, several days before you start to actually see your cervical fluid. So cervical fluid can look like clear, stretchy, kind of like raw egg whites. It can look like creamy white hand lotion, kind of like that sticky texture. It can also, um, for some women, they don't necessarily see a lot of them because they can stretch between their fingers, but they might notice that at a certain time of the cycle, they wipe themselves when they go to the bathroom and it's like, Pshoo! really slippery, <laughs> or they feel like they have to wipe a bunch of times to kind of like get it. Like it just feel like there's more there. Yes. Uh, so however you experience it in a healthy cycle you would expect to see mucus at least two to seven days and it would you'd expect it to lead up to ovulation so you in a healthy cycle you have to ovulate um, and then after ovulation you would expect that your period come about 12 to 14 days later so a healthy second half of the cycle um, we would want it to be at least kind of like that 11-12 That kind of takes us through the cycle. And I think for a lot of women, just to kind of hear that broken down in that way, um, it's not something that we're necessarily told about, taught about, all the things that happen in between. And I also think it's helpful and important because when you can understand the different parts of the cycle and what healthy looks like, then you can start to appreciate that if any one of those different aspects are off. Um, If you have too much mucus, if you have no mucus, if your luteal phase, second half of your cycle, you know, post-ovulation is too short. If your period is, uh, you know, all these things are going on, any one of those things can be an indication of a specific issue that you might be facing health-wise. When
0: you were saying about the differences in the cycle length, so from anywhere from 24 days, I think you said, until 35 days, if someone was every month having... A cycle day on 24 and then the next month 35 is that still classed as regular or is that irregular because it's it's within the ranges but it's not kind of consistent every month
1: Hmm. well that's a really great question because again because a lot of women would think that if their cycle is once occasionally 34 days that that means it's irregular so the definition then of a regular an irregular cycle would be if your cycle fluctuates more than say eight days at a time from cycle to cycle so yeah if your cycle was 24 days one cycle you know 34 days the next 46 days the next uh, or if you have fewer than you know five or six periods in an entire year then that certainly meets the definition of a regular I think it's also important just to kind of point out that any woman that's keeping track of her cycles over any length of time is going to notice that at some point in her life she might have a random cycle that's longer or a random cycle that's shorter and so if you have that experience it doesn't automatically mean that there's a problem either what is more indicative of an actual issue would be a consistent pattern when you actually see these irregularities and they persist cycle after cycle
0: and you mentioned about the short luteal phase so when you Ovulate if that's lasting less than um, 10, 12 days, and you're getting your period quite soon after ovulating. Why is that a problem, and what could that potentially indicate?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, so if your luteal phase, the second half of your cycle, so it's basically the time between ovulation and your period. So for women who are listening who have charted their cycles before, if they're charting their temperature, you know, you see the temperature rise and stay high. So basically, Um, That would be basically like 10 or less days of this high temperature, and then your period comes. Uh, So the reason that it's a problem, there's a a couple of different reasons. I mean, when you understand the hormonal cycle that is happening, um, in the first half of your menstrual cycle, as you approach ovulation, your ovaries are, the follicles are developing in your ovaries, and those follicles are producing estrogen, Um, And estrogen is what triggers like the cervical mucus production and when it reaches high enough that's what inadvertently triggers ovulation. Progesterone, we only produce significant amounts of progesterone in the second half of the cycle and progesterone plays a really important role to counter some of the effects of estrogen. So estrogen is associated with cell proliferation and growth, so estrogen grows our uterine lining, but we also know that estrogen, too much estrogen is associated with certain cancers because it's associated with that cell proliferation. So progesterone, on the other hand, is what helps to, helps with the cell maturation. It teaches the cells um, where it, it, so estrogen is causing everything to grow and progesterone is helping the cells to mature and directs the cells what they need to do. So they play an important role uh, kind of balancing each other. And we often think that the menstrual cycle is only related to, to whether or not you want to have babies or only related to reproduction. But these hormones are, you know, ovarian hormones, estrogen and progesterone play a crucial role in different Areas of the body outside of our period in our breast development, our bone development, um, our heart development. And so, when your luteal phase is too short, it's an indication that you're not producing enough progesterone. For example, if you're producing a significant amount of progesterone every day in a healthy luteal phase for 12 days, well, if we shorten that luteal phase to 10 days, you're getting two days less of this progesterone. Um, so, there is, there, you know, there has been research. Research done in different areas, particularly with regards to bone health, where women who regularly have a short luteal phase, who are then producing less progesterone, are more likely uh, to experience a greater degree of bone loss. Um, So it's interesting, right? Because who would ever think (laughs) that your period would be related to how your body develops bone as Mm -hmm. you um, go throughout your life? Uh, But yeah, so that's an important indication. Outside of that, however, for women, particularly who are trying to conceive if you if your luteal phase isn't long enough then that can inhibit your chances of conception so the way that conception happens um so you know in your menstrual cycle you ovulate and when you ovulate your um your fallote like your the the fimbria like the little if you i'm i always use my hands i'm trying to think of how (laughs) i can describe this for the listener so like your ovaries are kind of um if you kind of picture the uterus, you know, like you have um, the uterus itself, and then you have the fallopian tubes, and then you have the ovaries. So you ovulate, and then the egg actually goes into the fallopian tube. And fertilization happens in the fallopian tube. So if in a cycle where conception happens, that means that the woman would have had sex prior to ovulation, and the sperm is, the our cervical mucus can keep sperm alive up to five days. So you have this sperm that's actually living, it's like hanging out and surviving in your body, it's living in your cervix, and it's waiting in the fallopian tubes. Um, So when you ovulate, the sperm is already there, it's like the greeting committee or something, like at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, fertilization then happens in the tube, and the egg starts to kind of develop and grow, and it takes about a week or so before the egg develops and grows and makes its way out of the tube. And then it takes about another week for the egg to find its way into the uterus and find a nice warm place to implant and kind of make its way into the endometrial lining and fully be covered over. So this process of fertilization and implantation takes about two weeks. So if you are having your period already on day nine or day eight like after you've ovulated or day 10 then what can happen is even if the egg was fertilized it couldn't successfully implant. You're literally like the egg is trying to implant while the uterine lining is being shed. Mm. Um, So from a very practical standpoint, that's one of the ways that charting your cycle can help you to identify issues like that. Because you can appreciate that if you weren't charting and you didn't know this, you would never know. You would just like, you know, try to get pregnant and get your period and just think, you know, but with, when you kind of have this understanding of the cycle, then it's like, oh, okay, I understand how this works. Okay, my luteal phase is too short. I need to figure out how to extend it. Um, and I mean, it's, it's helpful to know that it is possible. There's a lot of different reasons why something like that might happen. And um, stress, and that might not be anyone's favorite thing to hear, but often stress or overexercise or lack of sleep or you know, certain things in particular can um, contribute to that type of thing in the post-ovulatory phase.
0: And stress isn't just like psychological stress either, is it? It's not just what people think. They might think, oh, I don't have a stressful lifestyle. My job's not stressful. I'm fine. But it could be that they are overexercising. Maybe they're not eating enough. Maybe they have chronic inflammation in the body that's stressful. So don't necessarily rule that out as a problem if you're not mentally stressed because there are multiple different types of stress as well. And if someone is tracking the cycle and they may be doing ovulation predictor kits or a blood test and they're showing low progesterone levels and they're not ovulating, what other reasons could they be? So stress again, that could delay ovulation or it could completely, um, completely stop ovulation in some cases. But if someone is kind of doing all the right things they are trying to manage the stress the best that they can what other things could they look into
1: um so are you asking what we could do specifically to try to improve the luteal phase length in particular yeah.
0: or um are some of these things the same things that would prevent or stop ovulation as well i feel like there's a lot of similar factors that could be leading to both
1: um I mean, yes and no in the sense that, so with the luteal phase issue in particular, I think um, it can be different than, it can be different than the things that could stop ovulation. So maybe I'll kind of address, but a lot of, so what you mentioned is is absolutely right. And it's, it's an important point to make, which is that when you think of stress, we often think of like the boss yelling at you or some specific event or situation that can be stressing us out. Uh, But if you think about what what is the main stress hormone cortisol what other situations could you know trigger the excessive production of cortisol so in terms of addressing it i think that it's often I don't know if it's frustrating or like I think we are. We're as a culture we're so used to hearing about like magical pills and supplements, and so often you might expect someone like me to list a whole bunch of supplements that um, that you could take as the solution for all of this. Uh, when I'm working with a client who has. A short luteal phase. I mean, the first thing we have to do is like have a conversation to try to figure out what it is that could be at play. For some women, it can be something like an endocrine issue if they have a thyroid issue that is um, basically causing them to experience uh, what I call a, like a low hormone kind of cycle where you can kind of see these signs of low mucus production, short luteal phase, and it's kind of all kind of happening together. Um, it can be something like an underlying infection, a gut problem if you have. Um, like some somewhere on the IBS spectrum or some other type of gut issue, well, that's associated with chronic inflammation in the body, which is going to uh, raise the cortisol levels, which is going to have a an effect on the progesterone we make. <laughs> we make cortisol from progesterone, mm. so if you're like super stressed out, you're li- like it's literally like your stress is literally made from your progesterone. <laughs> this is yeah. FYI. Um, so those types of things can affect it, and I think one of the things um, as women we hear about stress a lot and with charting it's one of the times where you can see a physical representation of how stress is impacting you and all stress is not acute so we have the situational stress of like something happened to me today but then we have the chronic stress of like i always i'm working 70 hours a week and i've been working 70 hours a week for six years so um I think that depending on what's happening in your life for some women it's like a wake-up call of like okay i really have to address these issues you mentioned the over exercise and the under eating um one of the things that i've had a number of conversations with clients because exercise is the thing they're doing to manage the stress (laughs) Mm, True. (laughs) Um, but then depending on like depending on the level of exercise that you're doing if you're exercising six days a week twice a day like that is no longer like it might feel like you're reducing stress but on a hormonal level you're increasing the stress hormone right Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: so there's a lot of different pieces to this and I would say that if you the first step would be to look at the lifestyle factors like literally like what time are you going to bed you know are you sleeping in the dark so you can't produce uh, optimal hormone levels when you're not sleeping and when you're not sleeping in the dark you're not going to produce the maximum amount of melatonin that you can and that's going to impact your progesterone production so I think for a lot of women they're just shocked that like going to bed on time and sleeping in the dark can literally lengthen the luteal phase sometimes a day or two just by doing that Mm -hmm. i can't i'm not promising it for everybody because like i listed all these different reasons that could be contributing but this is kind of the mindset shift um and then i mean if if you if none of those things work or you know there are obviously different supplements you can take to try to improve your progesterone production um So for instance, like magnesium is well studied in the um, post-ovulatory phase uh, because it has this calming effect on your body. You know, a lot of women will find that they sleep better and it does help to, you know, promote progesterone production but again a magical supplement isn't going to like fix everything if you're not looking at the lifestyle factors um (laughs) so (laughs) that's like the the post-ovulatory phase part of it but then like in terms of the things that could disrupt ovulation the things that could delay ovulation again that's its own kind of kettle of fish so obviously stress acute stress so a situational event or something like that like you're and it doesn't have to be bad you can be getting married or going on a vacation or something like that and if that occurs before you've ovulated that can actually delay ovulation by several days but it can also be related to again conditions thyroid conditions can disrupt the menstrual cycle can disrupt menstruation can change menstruation make the periods heavier or lighter um chemical exposure, you know, xenoestrogen, all of the different chemicals and all of the products that are specifically directed to women can have an impact on the menstrual cycle. So just to kind of put that out there, um, in the case of polycystic ovary syndrome, um, an an issue that is characterized by a high level of inflammation, glucose intolerance, meaning that your body doesn't um, really process sugar well, Um, that can have a significant impact on ovulation. And so a classic PCOS chart in a woman with who's struggling with that issue, um, that's more of the situation where you're having fewer than like eight or nine cycles a year when you're regularly swinging, you know, your cycle length, Eight days or more, you're going like 36 days, 42 days, kind of that kind of stuff. Um, it's quite common to see that um, kind of present that way. And then if a woman is losing her period entirely, like six months or a year at a time, that's often a different thing. So it's kind of the difference between over exercising and having it shorten your luteal phase by a couple days, to over exercising and under eating to the point that your period stops altogether, or if you're under excessive stress. So Obviously, there are a lot of different factors that can be at play here, but I think the overall point um, that it comes down to is that your menstrual cycle is a vital sign, and like step one is to kind of understand and appreciate that your cycles are connected to your overall health, and when you're seeing some sort of issue that falls outside of the normal range and you're seeing that persist, then we need to look deeper because there's some actual reason for that. It's not just happening in isolation or in a vacuum.
0: Yeah, and that's the title of your book, The Fifth Vital Sign. Do you want to just go over what you actually mean by that? Why is is your menstrual cycle classed as a fifth vital sign?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the most common vital signs that we're familiar with are, say, our heart rate, our body temperature, respiratory rate, blood pressure. And when you think of any of those signs, so take blood pressure, we have a very clear understanding that your doctor is gonna have a range of what's normal. So if your blood pressure is too high or too low, it's gonna tell your doctor that there's an issue. But beyond like the general sense of like, okay, this could be a problem, um, if your blood pressure is too high, it's also gonna tell your doctor where to look. Like there could be very specific reasons why the blood pressure would be high. And so when you think of the menstrual cycle kind of in its entirety, any of those pieces of the menstrual cycle, not kind of going haywire or going outside of the normal range, not only does it tell us that there's something going on, but it would also, to someone who's trained and who knows the connection between the cycle and the overall health, uh, they would be able to say not only like, okay, there's something wrong, but like, oh, in this case, this could be an indication of this or that. So that's why we can look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Um, even how, uh, I mentioned that cause your question about, you know, why is it a problem if your luteal phase is too short? And I mentioned that there's a connection between, um, your menstrual cycle and bone loss. So if a woman loses her period entirely, as is the case often in hypothalamic amenorrhea, so HA, when she stops ovulating due to the combination of, you know, over-exercise, under-eating or stress, um. What happens is when you look at the data, women who lose their period for an extended period of time, they do uh, lose bone mass at a greater rate. And it puts these women at a lifetime uh, greater risk of developing osteoporosis. So that would indicate <laughs> that we should be paying attention to our periods because it is giving us this feedback continually about the status of our overall health. Yeah, we're
0: just never taught that are way. We? We're just taught that your period is you just didn't get pregnant that month and that's that's all that matters and next month it's going to come again just prepare for it and nothing else is really interesting with that that's completely not the case there's just so much information and it's like your report card every month isn't it when you get your period there's so much that the the amount the texture the color can tell you about what's going on with your health as well but I feel like for some women, not having a period at all is perfect. That's like what they're aiming for. If it goes missing for a couple of months, that's a bonus. And even when they go to the doctors, maybe a bit suspicious of some um, some issues with the cycle, maybe it is irregular or particularly heavy one month, the recommendation from the doctor is to go on the birth control pill the majority of the time. I'd say 99% of the time, that's what they're told. And I love the kind of analogy in your book that it's like the smoke alarm going off in your house. And instead of doing something about it, investigating what's going on, um, addressing the fire that's kind of raging in the house, it's like just putting your headphones in or taking the batteries out and just ignoring it. And that's what going on the birth control pill is when when you're doing that for any imbalances or symptoms that you're having. So what would you say is the... What's the problem with that? Obviously, people can understand what the issue is,
1: but why is the pill not the answer? Um, well, I mean, it's a big topic, obviously, but the pill, put, put simply, the pill isn't the answer because the pill doesn't cure or fix anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's pretty much... Despite what reason. we're told. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, the pill doesn't regulate the menstrual cycle. Uh, I think it's really important to question language and to, to kind of pay attention to how we talk about things and the the little white lies about the pill that we're told are, you know, the pill, um, it regulates the cycle and then also that it tricks our body into thinking we're pregnant. Mm. So let's talk about what the pill really does. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <Please. laughs> um, The majority of hormonal birth control methods contain like a, a combination of synthetic estrogens and progestins. So I think first and foremost, we're often told like, oh, it's just estrogen and progesterone. Like it's not. So in order to patent drugs and sell them on the market, you have to make a product that is is different enough that you can actually like put your name on it. (laughs) So what they actually make these synthetic versions of our natural hormones in labs, they don't exist in nature. Uh, so that they can patent and sell them. So first and foremost, like, it's not the same. So therefore, it's going to have different effects in the body because it's not the same as our hormones. And so when you're taking any of the combined methods, which include the pill, you know, the patch, the ring, all of the different applications of it, um, and all hormonal contraceptive um, methods, they operate in what, like, in a combination of three main ways. So, you know, the first thing that most of the contraceptives do is suppress ovulation. So they basically interfere with the communication between your pituitary gland and your ovaries and stop you from ovulating. Now, not all methods, hormonal methods, completely stop ovulation. So we know that um, certain methods, you know, you might be able to ovulate either semi-regularly or randomly, sporadically, but it's still happening. And um, so the state then, when you suppress ovulation, considering that, our ovaries are what make our normal hormones. So if we're not ovulating, we're not making normal levels of our, our natural estrogen and progesterone. Um, so by saying that it regulates the cycle, it actually shuts down the cycle and it replaces our natural cycle with a fake chemical cycle. So when you're on you know, the pill or other type of um, hormonal birth control that you take for a while and then you have like a couple days off, then the bleeding that you experience is not a true menstrual bleed. It's actually a withdrawal bleed. It's a bleed that happens when you take away the artificial hormones. In order to have a true menstrual bleed, you actually would have to ovulate. (laughs) Um, And then the the effect of the estrogen on the endometrial lining in the first half of your cycle and progesterone in the second half, that's what's going to cause you to have a true period. So yeah, step one, it doesn't regulate your cycle. It repla- it gets rid of the cycle and replaces it with a fake one. Um, the, the myth about it being like, um, like you're pregnant, well, when you're pregnant, it's a natural state where you're producing significantly more estrogen and progesterone than you ever would in a natural cycle. And by the time you hit 40 weeks pregnant, your progesterone levels are more than 10 times what you would ever experience in a cycle. So it's completely different situation altogether. Um, so if you were to look at the natural hormone production of a woman on birth control compared to a woman, say, in menopause, that would look more similar because in menopause, your ovaries are inactive and you're not producing significant amounts of estrogen and progesterone. <laughs> so really, you it wouldn't sound good on the marketing, but you <laughs> could also say that the pill, you know, puts women into an early chemical menopause and that's mm. why we're not able to conceive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lose some, lose some sales with that with that claim yeah. <laughs> yeah um well and the thing about it though is you can't really badmouth it for that because that's why it works mm-hmm. so you know step one shutting down ovulation with well, that you, if you don't ovulate you can't get pregnant so that it, it needs to do that in order for it to have the efic- efficacy that it does. So like the other two ways that it works, it reduces, it prevents the endometrial lining from ever fully developing. So the endometrial lining when you're on hormonal birth control is quite thin, too thin in most cases to support a pregnancy. So even if an egg did somehow pop through, um, the endometrial lining itself isn't fully developed. And then it also prevents your cervix from making any of that cool cervical fluid that we were talking about. So the sperm can't even gain access to your uterus. So um, there are, so for instance, like the uh, hormonal IUD, a lot of women gravitate to that because in some cases, some women do continue to ovulate. I think it's important to point out that not all women continue to ovulate, (laughs) but some do. And so for a lot of women, that's appealing because it's not completely shutting down ovarian function. But these other These other factors are present. So it is interfering with implantation and it is disrupting your normal ovulatory function, but perhaps not to the same degree as some of the pills that fully just shut it down.
0: Yeah. And what about long term? Is there any evidence or maybe anecdotal evidence that the pill impacts your fertility and your hormones long term? So when someone comes off, I know that some people struggle with regaining their cycles and maybe some like post birth control syndrome type symptoms. But long term, does it have any
1: impact on your hormone, your ovulation, anything like that? Um, Well, I mean, I would love to be able to sit here and say that we have evidence that the pill has, you know, long term effects on fertility, but the evidence doesn't support that. Um, what the evidence shows is that there is a temporary delay in the return of your normal fertility when you come off the pill or other hormonal birth control and the length of time that you use the pill. So for instance, if you used it for six months versus if you used it for 10 years, that is going to kind of increase that, the likelihood then of kind of like a greater delay. Um, but so, um, there's a couple different ways that this is studied so one of the ways it's studied is in these time to pregnancy studies where they actually have women who weren't on hormonal types of contraception and then women who were on hormonal birth control and they just you know study them to see how long it takes them to get pregnant post pill and so for the you know the regular combined contraceptive methods on average it takes about twice as long So the woman who isn't on the hormones, on average, it would take about four months to get pregnant. But the woman who comes off of the pill, on average, it takes about eight months to get pregnant, Um, which obviously means some women get, get pregnant earlier and some women get pregnant later. And it's important to note that these studies don't necessarily confirm a live birth at the end. Not all pregnancies result in um, not all pregnancies go to term. I think it's important to say mm-hmm. that as well. And you're at an increased risk of miscarriage immediately if you get pregnant immediately post pill. Um, other types of contraceptives, like the shot has the, the, the longest delay. So women coming off the shot on average takes 18 months um, to conceive. So I think uh, that is important. I think uh, just, just to think about the mindset that a lot of women are in, especially if you've been very um, diligent and responsible preventing pregnancy all these years, everything finally comes into line, you're finally with your person, and you are ready to start a family. Um, Eight months, and the way the research reads, it often kind of downplays that, because it is reversible. So it is like, what's the big deal, right? It's just eight months on average. But then you take an actual woman. Well, after a lifetime of being taught that we could get pregnant every single day of our cycle, Um, you know, the first couple months, you might be okay. But by the third and the fourth month that you are having sex and not getting pregnant, we're already freaking out. So by the time you get to the eight month, ninth month, a year mark, we're already in the fertility clinic. So that's important to know that there is this temporary delay so that we can start to get into the mindset of like, just like we prepare for all these other things that happen in our life, we prepare for our careers, we prepare for marriage and all that kind of stuff. We should be preparing for pregnancy. And my recommendation is if you're on a hormonal method to consider coming off of it 18 months to two years before you're ready to start trying, not because it's impossible to get pregnant right off the pill, but you don't know what's going to happen. You know, Um, we know that there's this temporary delay. And so if you get off the pill before you are like, so I'm, I'm suggesting come off the pill, like, when you're still actively avoiding pregnancy. Um, And my suggestion for that is because then you give your body the time to rebound and to, to, to recover and to just reestablish itself before you have any pressure of trying to get pregnant. And if you're charting your cycles, you can also watch your cycles and see if they're falling into line or if you do have any problems. One thing I will mention that's really important is that when you look at the research on the pill and how it impacts fertility, they will specifically exclude participants who had issues with their menstrual cycle prior to using the pill. So if there was a woman who never knew when she was having her period, like hadn't had her period for six months and then was put on the pill, they are not allowed to be part of these studies because the researchers know that the pill doesn't fix or cure anything. The pill masks the problem. So if you had an issue with your periods and, you know, you had six periods a year or less and you didn't know when your periods were coming and you went on the pill, it gives you a fake withdrawal bleed every 28 days so everyone can feel better. It's like a pat on the head, like, it's okay. <laughs> but there was an issue that was causing that. And that issue is still there if it, if it hasn't been addressed, you know. So in the analogy that you that I brought up that you shared um, from the book, the, the fire anal- alarm analogy, like, When you take the pill in a situation like that, you're putting the tape over the alarm. Um, Like the fire is still burning, but you're just masking the symptoms. So your body's one way of trying to communicate to you is now shut, like you just shut it up. So what happens then is that women who had issues with their cycle prior to being on the pill are then at a greater risk of having a delay in however long it takes for their periods to come back. It's not so common, but there are obviously women who come off the pill and their periods don't come back for like six months, 12 months, five years. The pill doesn't cause that. The pill doesn't cause a woman to lose her period. But what we have there is a situation where there's an actual underlying factor that is preventing her from menstruating and the pill was masking it. So when she came off the pill, now you can actually see that there's a problem.
0: Yeah, and the pill, like you said, is is so effective because it shuts down your hormonal communication your ovaries aren't working like they usually do Um, it also depletes nutrients it can affect your gut health your microbiome creates inflammation all of these things can if you're already eating a poor diet those types of things then you could be in a worse situation coming off the pill as well Um, we've mentioned the fertility awareness a few times now so I want to go into that in a bit more detail how effective is the facility awareness method is it as effective or is it something that you need to be really careful with
1: mm-hmm. um no that's a great question i do want to just say before we move on about the pill because i definitely come across as anti-pill sometimes because i'm talking about all the research and i'm talking about the effects and we didn't even get into like the long list of the side effects which is extensive and a little bit you know disturbing and disruptive yeah i think it's just important i, I like to clarify you know i I, I don't. I think that women, we need to have access to all the different options available. My main issue is that we're not told. So for me, it's not that women shouldn't, you know, ever use the pill because we all have to make these choices for ourselves. But what I think is we need to be aware and informed about how it can affect us. Uh, because my heart just breaks for women who don't know that there's this temporary delay. It's a, such an easy thing you could just tell us and then we would know right yeah. and then we could just like organize it so that we come off of it you know even six to twelve months beforehand you know it is so So yeah I just want to clarify it's not that I'm saying like never use the pill I mean I would like to but I, that's just not um, it's not up. To, every woman has to make her own choice about what she's going to use um, and so for the I think that, yeah, we just all need to have that information available to us so that we can make informed choices. So that's it. I agree Um. with that, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, informed consent. If you're happy
0: knowing all of this information, that there may be a delay, that there may be some negative impact with your hormones, your nutrient levels, and there are actions that you can, the steps that you can take to kind of counter some of that and, like you say, organize and plan. If you're happy with that, then go ahead. I fully support you, but... It's the, for the women who answer who aren't told anything, and then it can lead to a lot of stress, heartbreak, and um, yeah, lots of money spent trying to investigate what's going on when they could have been told from the get go.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and we have an intense focus on preventing pregnancy in our culture, which I completely understand because I wanted to have babies when I wanted to, <laughs> not when I didn't want to, right? But at the same time, I wanted to have babies when I wanted to. That's the key. I think that we often forget that women also, we have to support both ways. We have to support women to be able to avoid pregnancy when they don't want to, but when they are ready, we can't be having all these barriers to them conceiving when they're ready. And so not being educated about how the pill can have this temporary, it's not, there's no evidence to show it's permanent, but it is temporary. Like it takes a bit of time for your body. Your body goes through a transition phase, um, post pill, and it takes, you know, time for everything to normalize. We need to know that so that there's no barriers when we're ready to get pregnant. And I think we need to support women as much when they want babies as when we don't want babies. Both things have to be supportive. (laughs) I agree. Um, (laughs) Uh, So, when it comes to the fertility awareness method, um, you know, one of the questions that you had was, like, how effective is it? Is it really effective? And with the fertility awareness method, of course, it has a long history of being equated with the rhythm method. So, I mean, modern day fertility awareness-based methods are not the same as kind of the rhythm method. So the rhythm method was based on calendar calculations and there are still certain methods that are based on calendar calculations, but um, you know, as a fertility awareness educator, fertility awareness based methods, it's, it's very different. So rhythm, you would basically chart enough cycles to have an average to be able to calculate an average. And then you would use your past cycles to predict when you would ovulate. And it's not, An effective method of birth control for the vast majority of women because cycle fluctuation is normal. The one thing all women have in common is that all women experience some degree of menstrual cycle fluctuation. Um, So with fertility awareness based methods, we are monitoring the three main fertile signs. Not all methods monitor all three signs, uh, but the main three signs would be your cervical mucus, as we talked about, your basal body temperature. So your temperature, if you take your temperature every day in the morning before you get out of bed and your cervical position changes. So the cervical position is optional, but when you watch these, pay attention to these biomarkers, you can identify um, throughout your cycle on any given day, really, if you're fertile or not that day. So it takes into account the fluctuations that you experience. Often, you know, you'll see information about fertility awareness on different websites that will say you can only use it if your cycles are perfectly regular. If your cycles are ever irregular, you can't use it, making it because it equates it with the rhythm method, but for instance, I teach my clients to be able to check their cervical fluid on a daily basis, to check their temperatures, so that they could literally say to themselves, or their partner, or me, I'm fertile today, because I, I've, I saw mucus, I'm not fertile, because I didn't, um, I know I ovulated, um, you know, around this day, because I monitor the changes in my cervical mucus and my basal body temperature so it's it's a very different approach it has been studied scientifically and so when used correctly the fertility awareness method has been shown to be up to 99.4 percent effective um, but I mean it has a huge difference between our modern hormonal methods um, so for instance like the patch or the the shot or even the pill there's a lot There's a there's a difference between like why methods might fail so like user failure versus method failure, so um, method failure is actually if the if the method doesn't work and you use it correctly and you still get pregnant whereas user failure is like the condom is not even on, (laughs) (laughs) so can't really work can it right? Mm -hmm. Um, So with the fertility fertility awareness based methods it's all user. It's like, or, or what I'm trying to say is like, it's on you. Like mm-hmm. if you have an IUD inserted, the only way it can fail is if the method fails, which can happen, but the chances are lower, right? Um, so, but if you are charting your cycles, well, if you don't chart, if you don't pay attention and all of that, then it's it's a little bit different. So um, I think in our culture, and especially I've interviewed a number of doctors and health professionals. um there's certainly the sense that it's too complicated, women aren't able to do it, and because it's so dependent on that, like the the woman understanding and, and kind of following these rules, we're often kind of dissuaded to do that. So what I often say is that Fertility awareness is not for everyone. Every single woman doesn't want to use fertility awareness. Every single woman, even if she likes the the concept of it, it might not be right for her at every stage of her life. But for the women who gravitate to this method, who choose to learn it, who work with an instructor, who take a class, who educate themselves in whatever way makes sense to them, um, and chart diligently and use the method, it works. So it it, it, it's kind of one of those things where women self-select. You know. I see that as well. A lot of people do have anxiety and they just find
0: it too overwhelming. Maybe it's got a lot going on. Um, What other alternatives do these women have if they definitely don't want to go back on the pill, but they want to do something more natural and that doesn't interfere with the hormones? What what recommendations would you give them?
1: Well, I mean, essentially when you're avoiding pregnancy without hormonal birth control, there's like a menu of possibilities that are available to you. And it really depends on you, you what you are comfortable with, what your partner is comfortable with, what makes sense for the two of you and within your relationship and what your partner is willing to do, what you're willing to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, I mean, you have a variety of options. For some women, they'll combine Fertility awareness, like so having that general understanding of their, their cycle with other methods. So for instance, on the menu includes condoms. Um, some couples are completely fine with condoms. Other couples don't find condoms to be acceptable. Some couples use withdrawal. I always talk about withdrawal because it's one of the methods that is considered a non-method. And I've had many conversations with clients that kind of look to the floor like, who use withdrawal? Like and kind of like shameful kind of thing. But um, I talk about withdrawal because simply a lot of people actually use it. And so it's kind of one of those things where if you're going to use it, you need to know how to use it correctly. The research would indicate it's up to 96% effective when used perfectly. And the big point of contention is, is there sperm in a man's pre-ejaculatory fluid or not? The research is not conclusive. So some research studies show that there is none in the participants that they studied. Other research studies show that some men have it and some men don't. But either way, up to 96% effective when used correctly and then typical use is closer to like 70 something percent. Um, So some couples will use withdrawal. Um, Some couples will use uh, some other type of barrier like a diaphragm or a cervical cap. And so using those methods correctly, you're supposed to use them with um, spermicide. I would recommend like a (laughs) non-toxic, known in 9 type spermicide. Um, And then, you know, some, couples will combine the two. So they might use diaphragm with condoms, or they might, you know, use condoms with, or use uh, with withdrawal, or like some sort of combination. Um, for, for women and couples who are practicing the fertility awareness method, really it comes down to how to manage the fertile window. So the fertile window, when you're using a specific method, uh, from a scientific perspective, you're fertile, Uh, up to five days before ovulation plus ovulation day six days but when you're using a method you have to add in the buffer period and all that so typically there's at least a nine to ten day window in the cycle that is kind of what are you going to do and so again some couples will use those different examples that I shared and some couples will um, kind of avoid penetrative sex during that time so they might and enjoy other types of sexual activity that doesn't involve penis and vagina. Um, Some couples will abstain for that period of time. Uh, So it really depends. And the challenge is that it requires the cooperation of your partner. Uh, I personally think it's time that we can have that conversation. I think that the reign of men being able to do whatever they want um, and us having to modify our actual physical bodies with hormones in order to allow him to continue to be able to ejaculate inside of my body. When I, like, I feel like we've made all the concession to, to this point. So I feel like we've reached a time where we can have these conversations and um, women can have more agency in not being on hormonal birth control but still having their partner's cooperation to find ways to avoid pregnancy Um, but again it's not the same in every woman's relationship Uh, so
0: yeah everyone's different and yeah there's plenty of options there for people to research into and see what works for them and yeah like you say it, it can change over the years if fertility awareness works fine for you now then great and then you can maybe switch switch it up in a couple of years when it's just too much and you're not gonna be doing it as accurately and consistently. Um, I've just got a few questions on each of the, the tracking signs. Um, the first one with cervical mucus, what about if someone doesn't see any? So if they're not producing cervical mucus at all, what would you say to that?
1: Um, well, the first thing, of course, as an educator, I would want to know how they're checking for their mucus. So there's different ways to check. Some women check internally, some women use toilet paper, but the first thing I would establish is the, like, are you checking? Are you checking enough? Is there actually mucus there? Is or not? You know, what are you actually seeing, etc.? So if we've done all of that and established that she's not producing any, there are reasons for that. So uh, typically what I've seen is if a woman has like nothing, I have seen dry cycles. Uh, I've seen it a number of times in women immediately off the birth control pill. So I've had and it doesn't happen to every woman. So just to put it out there, I've seen women immediately off the birth control pill who do have mucus. Um, albeit the patterns typically take a few cycles to normalize. But I have seen it a couple of times where a woman will come off the pill and the first two cycles, three cycles, nothing. Dry, no mucus. And then as their cervix begins to you know get back to normal, their hormones begin to normalize. Then they begin to see their uh, mucus patterns. Um, limited mucus production can be related to A number of different things it can be related to hormonal production because your mucus is produced directly in response to your estrogen levels and it can also be related to the actual physical health of your cervix so women who have had a history of you know HPV, like uh, an HPV infection that was consistent that didn't go away, that lasted for a long time, um, cervical dysplasia at various levels, women who have experienced those issues and then had to have some sort of surgical procedure, uh, laser procedure, etc., to to remove abnormal cells from their cervix. Uh, Any procedure that you have to the cervix has the potential to damage the cervical crypts where the mucus is produced. So I've also seen women that have had those types of histories with their cervix and abnormal cells and surgeries and things like that, that there's a physical reason why they're not producing mucus. Um, Stress and other endocrine issues can cause that. If a woman is not, like if a woman has hypothalamic amenorrhea and she's like not even ovulating well, she's not gonna see any mucus. and I'm trying to think of, those are the, the immediate issues that come to mind. Um, and also, if a woman actively does have abnormal cells or cervical dysplasia, then in many cases, she might actually show less mucus than is normal. Uh, So yeah, those would be some of the reasons why a woman doesn't see it. And so in any of those cases, like if it was immediately post-pill, well, we need to support your body. We need to support, you know, replenish some of those nutrients, make sure that you're eating a diet that supports hormone production. So we produce our steroid hormones, estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol, um, even vitamin D, it's directly synthesized from cholesterol so if your diet doesn't contain any animal fats um Mm -hmm. and you have an issue with hormone production and you are noticing all these concerns then you may have to consider that because literally the hormones are produced from the cholesterol so if yeah so that's a consideration like the dietary aspect of it um the consideration of just allowing time for your body to normalize post-pill addressing nutrient deficiencies um The cervix requires folate, vitamin A, B vitamins in order to produce healthy mucus. So just kind of making sure you're covering your bases. Um, So yeah, I mean, I could go on for days because this is what I do, but (laughs) I think I'll stop there. (laughs) Yeah, I've also seen um,
0: dehydration and antihistamines leading to, um, like clinically, leading to low cervical mucus production. Um, And what about for someone who is seeing that stretchy egg white cervical mucus multiple times throughout the cycle so maybe they've got excessive cervical mucus and they think that they're ovulating they see an increased production and then it goes away and then it comes back maybe 5 days later what could be going on there
1: mhm well you just jog my memory of a couple important points to mention as you mentioned the antihistamines i've seen that before if you are taking allergy medication it's so interesting how it can completely drop. mucus um but it's just another thing to mention women who've gone through certain types of fertility treatments who um, so for instance like clomid there's a lot of research on how clomid can negatively impact mucus production because it changes the way that your cells respond to estrogen so it makes your cells resistant to estrogen so then you're making all this estrogen and your cells are resistant to it so that would mean that you wouldn't produce mucus right um so yeah so just kind of medications and things that's a good point so thank you uh in terms of the the opposite like producing a lot off i I mentioned kind of polycystic ovary syndrome and how the classic chart typically involves like longer cycles or um more irregular cycle presentation so it's not uncommon For a woman then that has a longer cycle. And what a long cycle means is her ovulation is delayed. If a woman has a 46 day cycle, it typically means she probably ovulated closer to day 32 or day 33. Um, Because the second half of the cycle is pretty stable. It's not always exactly the same, but it doesn't fluctuate nearly as much. Um, In a situation like that, if you see like several days of mucus, that's clear and stretchy and then, you know, it goes away for a bit and then it comes back, that just typically means that your body is gearing towards ovulation. The follicles are maturing and producing estrogen, but something is happening that is causing that to kind of back off for a while. And so typically it's a combination. It can be related to stress if it's an issue like polycystic ovary syndrome, which is characterized by the um, insulin resistance and inflammation, all these types of things. Um, it's often related to that combination of diet, all kinds of things that are, that are happening. Um, in other situations, if a woman has mucus every single day, for some women, it can be an early sign of some sort of infection. So, For some women, before they're even itchy, they might notice that they have a consistent pattern of creamy mucus all the time. And that could be an indication of a yeast infection if it's happening like all throughout the cycle. Because in a healthy cycle, you would expect to see the mucus around ovulation, not all the time. Um, I've also seen women who have gut issues, gut infections, they're somewhere on the IBS spectrum, they're consuming foods that they have a sensitivity to and it just seems to cause this consistent pattern of just mucus all the time. And if they identify the food that they're sensitive to or kind of address some of those gut issues, then they'll see that stop and then the mucus will be where it's supposed to be around ovulation. So, um, yeah, mucus is super interesting in how it can respond to all these different factors
0: yeah it's very interesting i I wasn't aware of that. I read that in your book. um the gut connection, I obviously know the guts related to the hormones, but I've never made that connection with the cervical mucus. so yeah, very interesting. and you mentioned before about you need to check your cervical mucus correctly. How many times are we talking? Are we talking maybe once a week, once a day, three times a day? What do you feel like the best way to check and do you have to literally Insert your fingers into your vagina, or just see what's in your underwear. How do we know what's going on?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's important to point out that there's different fertility awareness-based methods. So, like, different methods are going to have different suggestions for what to do. So, um, hard pressed to say that there's like a right method, but um, I find that there's some methods that help. It, like, when I'm teaching a woman, it, there's some ways that make it clearer and more helpful than others. Uh, so I find that when you, for women who check internally, um, the vagina is never dry. (laughs) If you insert your finger into your vagina, you're always going to have some sort of moisture when you remove it. So, uh, the concept of like a dry day is lost on anybody who checks internally because there's, there's never dry. There's always something there. Uh, so I typically recommend the, you know, checking externally. So basically like when you go to the bathroom, you are already wiping yourself I didn't have to tell you to do that um so now you're just adding a layer of conscious like consciousness you're actually going to pay attention when you wipe do what you were doing anyways and um pay attention like how does it feel because sometimes in if you notice that sometimes of the cycle it feels pretty slippery versus others when it just feels pretty dry that is kind of like the first step so um one thing I find too is women who check like internally they're typically just checking like once or twice a day Uh, I don't know, it's just not that convenient to like, you know, insert your finger into the vagina like 10 times a day. Um, But if you're checking externally, like with toilet paper, you could just check whenever you go to the bathroom. So uh, what happens is you end up kind of checking more frequently throughout the day if you use the external way of checking.
0: Yeah, that's good to know. Um, So with the basal body temperature now, i just got a few more questions to ask about that. Are we just wanting to buy a basic thermometer off Amazon or do we need to buy like the daisy thermometer for hundreds of pounds or dollars to have effective results
1: well i mean to answer your specific question like do you need an expensive thermometer to have results no you don't you can be just as successful using fertility awareness with like 20 dollars thermometer off of amazon Uh, it's a personal choice i'm not going to tell anybody what kind of thermometer to buy for some women paying all that money for the daisy or the lady comp or i don't you know all of the fancy four (laughs) hundred dollars whatever um but paying all that money for something um can often signal to their partners that like oh this is serious and it can often have that sense of like okay this i'm I'm investing in this this is important to me um and also like a lot of us really just like tech and we like to have the convenience of having something that sticks to our phone and all of that so i don't want to discount any of that but from a very practical standpoint i've been charting since like 2000 like whatever and so um when i started charting yeah when i started charting my cell phone had like a green screen and i didn't even know what texting (laughs) was so i was able to do what i needed to do with like an excel spreadsheet some pencils a a ruler and like a ten dollar thermometer from the store so um the most basic thing that you want to look for is uh these days it's really easy to find a thermometer that measures to two decimal points so you know go with that think about the features that might be useful to you some women like to have a backlight or have a thermometer with a memory or a thermometer that changes you can change it between Fahrenheit and Celsius uh but yeah and then it, and the thing too is that like if you're waiting until you like you're saving up for some fancy thermometer like just no just like buy a cheap thermometer and just like get started because the fancy thermometers will always be there so you can just start now and just do it basic and then if you decide you want to like change later on, you can, those options are always there.
0: And what important information do people need to know when they're taking the temperature? Um, how do they do it? And what do they need to, what are kind of the rules when taking temperature?
1: Well, I mean, the temperature is measuring the baseline, like your resting metabolism. So you want to um, ideally, you know, um, get a, a minimum of about five hours of sleep in a row. And you want to take it first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. And um, you want to take it about the same time every day, you know, within about two hours or so. If you Google it and look online, you'll see a lot of people say it has to be like at the same time and you got to be all like specific about it. But I've been doing this for a long time. And ultimately, I feel like what makes the biggest difference is not to be perfect all the time, but to start to become aware of, the different factors that can affect your temperature, know that every woman isn't the same. So for some women, <laughs> they have a drink of wine and the temperature is like to the top of the chart, whereas other women, it doesn't really make a difference. So part of it is to be aware that, yeah, temperature is responsive to a bunch of different factors. It can be responsive to um, you know seasonal allergies, anything that triggers your immune system. It can be responsive to, to travel, to illness, to all kinds of different things. So um, taking your temperature, being consistent with it, making good notes if you usually wake up at a certain time and you wake up earlier or later just making notes of that and then that'll help you interpret your your charts later on um, one of the things that i suggest that a lot of women like like still are just like we see you're out to lunch is to hold the thermometer in place like to warm it up first so keep the thermometer in place for 10 minutes before you actually turn it on because the digital thermometers beep really quickly you can do your own experiment, but what I found is that if you let the thermometer warm up before you take the temperature, then it does give a, your whole chart is more stable because do it for yourself. If you don't believe me. That's totally cool. Take the thermometer and then like put it in right away and let it beep and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again and do that for a couple of minutes and you'll see what I mean. Cause you'll get a different temperature. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that's more important than being perfect. I, Again, I feel I always feel a little sad when a woman tells me like I got up at five on a Saturday to take my temperature. I'm like, it's really not that deep. Just like take your temperature whenever you get up, and then make a note that you got up a couple hours later. Like that to me, sleep is more important, ladies. <laughs> I agree. I'm with you on
0: that one. <laughs> and lastly, I just want to ask a bit more about the um, cervix position. So, could you just kind of describe what the cervix is? What are people looking for, and how how does that change when we're fertile?
1: Well, the cervix is the the lower portion of your uterus. It's the part that dilates when you have babies. And um, it changes in position and texture throughout the menstrual cycle which is really neat. Um I think that was one of the first things that I discovered when I was kind of on my path to discover fertility awareness cuz there was a speaker that was like, "Oh, the cervix changes." And I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> cuz that's so cool. Um so so yeah, so around the fertile window, the cervix typically goes to a higher position in the uterus, it's softer. Um you find and check your cervix by inserting your finger into your vagina, typically the middle finger, it's typically the longest finger. Um, And so at certain times of the cycle, the cervix will be lower. So you'll touch it, like your finger won't be necessarily in that far before you can touch it. And other times it'll be higher. So you have to actually like reach in there and and try to find it. Some women will even say that at certain times of the cycle, they can't even feel it, depending on where there's, you know, the position of their uterus. Uh, So basically around ovulation, the cervix typically is higher, um, softer, and you may feel a bit of a dimple, like an opening. Um, not like an opening, like you can stick your whole finger through, but just like a little bit of a a different feeling. And then outside of the fertile window, it's typically in a lower position, firmer. Um, And really my, the only suggestion I can really give or the best suggestion I can really give is, again, it's an optional sign. Some women never check their cervix and they use fertility awareness and they're fine. Um, But for the women who want an additional sign, especially if we talked about some of the reasons women might not be seeing mucus. So I, I like having the the position cervical position available as an optional sign for women who um for whatever reason are not able to rely on the mucus for a while or if they've got wonky temps they're sick for a while it's just nice to have an additional data point when you're doing this method so um for those women in order to really get your head around your cervix my suggestion is to check it every day for one full cycle and even if it feels annoying and you're not sure what you're feeling just keep going check it every day for one full cycle and then you'll have a better sense of how it changes around ovulation Hmm.
0: good advice yeah that's interesting so would you say that to do fertility awareness method um, accurately you'd combine the temperatures with the cervical mucus is that enough and then you've got the cervix position as an add-on
1: kind of helper um, Well, I mean, again, there are methods of fertility awareness charting that are mucus only. All right, okay. No temps. Right. There are methods of fertility awareness charting that are temp only. Hmm. No mucus. Yeah. Um, I mean, in those cases, it's like the whole preovulatory phase is off limits and you're waiting to confirm ovulation, okay. but still. Hmm. Um, and then there's no cervical position only. <laughs> so it's not, the cervical position is a like a, a, a supportive to the other two. Um if someone really wants so there's a difference between having a general awareness of your menstrual cycle and actually using a specific method of fertility awareness to avoid pregnancy. Um, it's just like there's sorry, I feel like I'm going Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let it not don't worry. <laughs> um, but um just like there's different like birth can so there's like a hundred types of pill and there's different fertility awareness-based methods. So if someone's really wanting to use fertility awareness to avoid pregnancy, um, my suggestion is, first of all, you need to educate yourself. And so as an educator myself, I I feel, and the research would indicate that to get the highest degree of efficacy with the method, it is best to choose a, a type of charting that you want to do and work with an educator so that you can really it's kind of like when you're learning to drive like going to a driving teacher because this is not something you can just read a book and go do it's something that you read a book and then you have to actually do it you're going to have questions and then it's a practice that you learn and it doesn't it's not so hard to learn but just like anything else it um there's no woman ever that has ever just done this and not had a a ton of questions about how it all works. Uh, So if you're learning on your own, you know, you want to grab a resource. So something like Tony Weschler's taking charge of your fertility. I think a lot of women, that's their first foray into charting Um, my book, the fifth vital sign. Um, is a helpful resource and there's lots of other resources of course to go to if you are teaching yourself then you'll probably want to at least find a community like there's lots of groups on different social media channels of people who chart so you're going to want to start at least find some women who are doing this or who have done this you can ask your question in a place and then my recommendation is when you're doing it on your own to wait three full cycles, not months, a cycle. We talked about it, right? Like period to the next period. So three full cycles with ovulation to learn before you even consider having unprotected sex on your infertile days. And then if you're working with an instructor, a minimum of one full cycle before you even think about having unprotected sex, because you, in order to, I want you to be successful. I set my clients up for success and I don't want, for any woman who just like reads a book and just starts having a protected sex, like that's not the same as learning a method and understanding what you're doing.
0: <laughs> exactly. I agree. Yeah. Just getting the help that you can and finding a coach and definitely picking up a copy of your book, The Fifth Vital Sign. You very kindly sent me a copy and I've been loving it, learning new things myself. And I've been in this kind of field for a long period of time now and still learn a lot from you as well uh, so i feel like like i said to you at the beginning it's kind of should be the handout and the it should be the requirement read for teenage girls these days just to understand their body we can scrap sex education classes <laughs> just give them your book instead oh, thank <laughs> <a perfect> you. <laughs> edition. so um w- could you let people know where they can get your book where they can find you online your podcast all of those good things so they can connect with
1: you after the episode well yes, yeah, thank you so much. Um so the book is The Vital Sign Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. It's available on Amazon in um ebook, paperback and audiobook uh formats. I was really excited to finish the audiobook. It was harder than I thought. <laughs> um I was like, "Oh, a podcaster, this is going to be easy." Um, and uh, for the listeners who are intrigued about the Fertility Awareness Method, I have a free three-part video series. So if you head over to fertilityfriday.com slash FAM, F-A-M, 101, um, yeah, it takes you through the basics of the three major signs that we were talking about today. Uh, as for me, I am at Fertility Friday in a lot of places. So I've been on Instagram um, inciting the masses by kind of shattering the myths about menstrual cycle and female fertility Uh, so i'm at fertility friday on instagram and facebook facebook.com fertility fridays and twitter at fertile fridays i'm in i'm I'm, I'm in the places yeah and then the the podcast if you just search fertility friday in your podcast player um, i will pop up
0: and i'll include a link to all of those things in the show notes as well so you can just head to the show notes and click directly onto your online resources Um, and i highly recommend listening to your podcast you've got probably hundreds and hundreds of episodes on this subject so go and check that out thank you so much lisa for your time i really enjoyed this episode and just keep doing what you're doing spreading the word
1: on fertility awareness well thank you for having me and for asking such awesome questions i feel like we really covered a lot of ground so this is uh, it's exciting to be able to share this we sure did thanks
0: lisa are you struggling with symptoms of a hormonal imbalance Do you have a diagnosis of PCOS, endometriosis or unexplained infertility and just have no idea where to start? Are you constantly trying to cover your cystic acne with makeup or make your thinning hair appear thicker with different shampoos and hairstyles? Is your period all over the place? Is it really heavy or even completely absent? Do you spend all of your time searching online for answers, posting in Facebook groups trying to find the solution to your problems? If you answered yes to any of those questions and you live in the UK, you would be perfect for my six week online group coaching program that is due to begin on Wednesday, the 4th of September, 2019. Join me and nine other ladies each week as I teach you the six pillars of hormonal health, including how to regulate your blood sugar and insulin levels, improve gut health, regulate your adrenal and thyroid hormones, and finally get control over your symptoms. Each week you'll have access to live video calls, worksheets and reading material for you to work through at your own pace. You'll get access to an interactive Facebook group where I'll be hosting weekly Q&As. This is your chance to ask me anything. There'll also be the option to upgrade for discounted one-on-one sessions and access to functional lab tests like the Dutch Hormone Panel and the GI Map Still Test that you probably heard me talk all about before on these podcast episodes. Plus recommendations for practitioner grade supplements all with 10% discount. Enrolment is now open and will be until the end of August 2019. If you're interested in this, you're a fan of this podcast, you love the work that I share on Instagram, secure your place now as there are only 10 spaces available. For more information and to get involved head over to my website viva-naturalhealth.co.uk. And select the hormones in harmony group coaching program under the one-on-one support menu i'll also include a link to the web page in the show notes to this episode if you have any questions send me an email or dm on instagram you can find me at Fever natural health i'm so excited to get started with this program and i'll hope that you'll join me thank you for listening to another episode of the hormones in harmony podcast if you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at Viva Natural Health for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next step to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.